So it, it goes without saying that most famous people are famous for something, and they're famous for something they have done. However, Jesus is famous principally for something else. He's famous principally for dying. Now, it's not to suggest that Jesus didn't also do significant things. He gave us the greatest ethical system, the ethical teaching that we have. He launches this worldwide movement, this, the, the, the church, these communities of grace, hope, and love that are based on his life and teaching and work. Uh, he starts this with no money, and he's got sort of a collection of uh, not the most impressive people to do it, but it, it goes, it grows, it overwhelms the Roman Empire, and it's going in every direction. It's more everywhere today than McDonald's or Google or Coke. Uh, Jesus fulfills prophecy. He heals the sick. Jesus challenges corruption. Jesus, Jesus does a lot of things, but he is principally known and revered for his death. And we are now in this study of Luke uh, in the, in the, at the very precipice of this crucifixion event. It's Friday morning. Jesus has uh, a half dozen hours yet to live. This is the Friday uh, that is referred to as Good Friday today. When we celebrate Holy Week, Good Friday is, is the day in which Jesus was crucified. It's worth noting it's only called Good Friday in America. The rest of the world calls it uh, Holy Friday or Passion Friday or Sorrowful Friday or Friday of the Lament. Somehow, as Americans, we get good out of that, right? Everybody else is calling it bad. We call it good. And there's a sense in which it is good for us, right? We celebrate that God loved us enough that he did everything that needed to be done for us to be forgiven and reconciled and restored into a relationship with him. Um, so it's called Good Friday, and uh, it, it follows the Thursday night in which they had the Passover celebration. Judas betrays Christ. Uh, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and suffers. Uh, and then there's this little altercation when he's being arrested until he stops everybody and says, wait a minute, I'm, I haven't been hiding and I'll go peacefully. He, he heals the man that Peter lopped off the ear of the Roman guard. They take him. The disciples scatter. They take him into custody. Uh, Peter will deny Christ three times. And the passage that we're going to look at today at the end of Luke 22 picks up at that moment, right after Peter has denied Christ. It is Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus mocked him and beat him. It's, it's remarkable how cruel we can be to each other. And it's just worth noting that good sometimes gets singled out for bad, right? Good can make bad feel worse about itself. It can, it can sort of seem to be sitting in judgment without intending to. And so oftentimes bad really goes after good. And these, these men uh, uh, are mocking and beating Jesus. They also blindfolded him and asked him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So close your eyes for a second and imagine now that someone is about to hit you. <laughs> and maybe with a board or a bat or they're going to punch you in the face and you have no idea where it's coming from. Right? 
you can open your eyes. The, the point is, this is not a good moment uh, for Jesus. He is suffering, and they are mocking him. So uh, they say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? There's, there's a couple things worth noting here. First of all, there's, there's a bit of irony going on. Uh, so back in, in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings, the first chapter, there is a scene in which Ahab, who's a bad king, uh, is chasing Elijah, a prophet. Elijah had been the one that had told Ahab that because he had been so wicked, God was going to punish Israel. And Ahab has responded by trying to get and kill Elijah. So there's a scene, several scenes, in which Elijah is being chased, and he ends up in one on the top of a mountain. And there's 50 soldiers that are coming up to get him, and he's at the top, and they say, one of the soldiers says, Elijah, man of God, come down. And um, Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. And fire comes down and consumes these 50 men. So that sort of becomes the template for a prophet. If you're a prophet, right, you don't get captured by guards. You can call down fire from heaven. How would you get captured? So the soldiers are, in a sense, mocking Jesus. You say you're a prophet, right? But you got caught. How great are you at seeing where things are going to go? You got caught. You're not a prophet. Hey, tell us who, who just hit you, right? So they're mocking Jesus. Now, if you've been reading, you say, well, wait a minute. In this chapter, he has predicted that Peter was going to deny him three times. And he has, he has predicted that Judas was going to betray him. And he has predicted that he was going to suffer and die, that he was going to get beaten. So he has predicted all of this stuff. Furthermore, you don't find yourself wondering what's going to happen now that things are going poorly. Like, oh no, the Roman guards got Jesus. Like, this is, good. This is bad. You're not, you're not marveling uh, or worried about that. You're sort of marveling that Jesus is not doing anything. Because clearly, he could. Right? He could call down fire. He could call in angels. He could do whatever he needed to do. The man can do whatever he needs to do. And he does nothing except accept the beating. Right? So you sort of marvel that he's accepting the beating. Additionally, right, you marvel because at this point you now have clued in that he's accepting this beating for you. So one of the, one of the things that continues to sort of plague our world is uh, among the violence and the racism and the, the, the idiocracy that's out there is, is anti-Semitism. Right? There's, there's, a, there's an anger that is often directed at Jews because they're Jews. And one of the things that is stated to justify hating the Jews is that they killed Jesus. So let's just pause and note that uh, technically they didn't. Okay? So it's a, this, is, this, this book is a Jewish book, right? It's a Jewish story. So from Genesis chapter 12 arguably, all the way into the middle of the book of Acts, pretty much everybody is a Jew, right? So that's who we're following. God said, Abraham, 
if you will follow me, I'm going to bless you and all, those, uh, all of your descendants. And starting technically, I guess, with Jacob, we have the Jews. Jacob gets his name changed. They become the Jews. But it's all, it's, they're all Jews, right? Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses and, and Aaron and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and Mary and Martha and Rebecca and Sarah. It's, it's a Jewish story. It's a Jewish book. So everybody's a Jew. Interestingly, however... When it comes time for Jesus to be killed, it's not the Jews. You would expect there to be Jewish good guys and Jewish bad guys because it's a Jewish story and they're all Jews. Except now it's going to be the Romans that are going to kill Jesus. Had Jesus been killed by the Jews, he would have been stoned for blasphemy. He's killed by the Romans and he is crucified for insurrection, for political insubordination. So one point to note is that it was technically the Romans that killed Jesus. Secondly, when you read the New Testament, you come away with the understanding that God the Father is claiming to have sent the Son. Right? This is part of the plan. And so the Father sent the Son. He sort of claims responsibility. But then Jesus will say, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. Right? So Jesus is saying, no, I'm the one who has done this. But if you have been reading carefully at this point, right, because we just came through this whole idea that there's not a lot of daylight between who I am and who Judas is, right, you say, no, this is, this is on me. Like, I'm culpable for Jesus' death. In a, in a classic high church, liturgical church, Good Friday service, you read a long section of Scripture. You start with the arrest of Christ on Thursday night, and you read all the way through everything up until Christ's crucifixion. It is a responsive reading technically. So it's, it's a narrator in a congregation that is reading all of this. Except, here's the catch. <laughs> There's only two words given to the congregation, right? Only two words symbolically given to us to read, and that's the words of the crowd crucify him because that's our role in this right we are saying in essence crucify this is on us so what we have here if we are reading this carefully is sort of an overwhelming sense that okay i've got some you know i've got some ownership here and these men are holding jesus mocking him and beating him they blindfolded him they say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And the irony here is that he could easily, he has been prophesying, he is a prophet. He obviously could answer this question, but he is going silently and willingly. And they spoke many other words against him. When day came, so this is happening late at night, there's no sleeping on Thursday night, Friday morning. And again, that's it's a little complicated because for the Jews, Friday starts at sundown on Thursday, but Basically, that night, Jesus is not sleeping. He's being beaten or questioned. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. So the Jews are the first to question Jesus. Jesus will be paraded before this Jewish council. He'll go before 
Pilate, who is the Roman governor who's got the control of the military. He'll go before Herod, who's the king of the Jews appointed by Caesar. He'll go back to Pilate, who will wash his hands and say, I think the guy's innocent, but whatever. Uh, You're charging him with insurrection against Caesar. I can't take that lightly. So he'll order him beaten and crucified. But the first stop, the first quote-unquote trial, is Jesus before the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders have a problem. The problem is they're not in charge, so they, they want Jesus killed, but they don't have that authority. So they need to get Jesus on record saying something, or they need to get witnesses testifying against Jesus in particular that Jesus has, been, uh, has, has threatened Rome in some way. So what they ask is a quasi-religious, quasi-political question. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. The word Christ is a Greek word. It means Messiah in Hebrew. Our English word would be chosen one, anointed one, special one. So... We hear that one way. They would have heard it a slightly different way, right? So they are asking him because they're waiting for a Messiah. They they are asking him, are you the one, do you think you're the one that we've been waiting for, right? Are you going to claim to be the one that we have been waiting for, that was promised to us by God? That That is a religious promise, because the, the Jews are the people of God and they've been chosen by God. But it's also a political statement. Because their understanding at this point is that the Messiah is going to be like David. So David had come along. He had unified the, the 12 tribes. He had defeated the enemies of Israel. He had expanded the borders. He'd filled the coffers with money. He'd done all these great, wonderful things. He'd unified Israel. Israel under David becomes a superpower. They had been nothing. They become a superpower. They want another David. And in this context, they want somebody that's going to defeat their enemies, which would be Rome. They are, they are an occupied territory. Roman Empire has, is, is in control of everything. They're in control of Israel. They are an occupied people. So they're looking for somebody who's going to defeat Rome and elevate them back up to being the superpower they had been before. So they ask him, in essence, are you the Messiah? It's an appointment by God. It's going to be a military political leader. And basically we'll say, they ask him, are you here? Everybody else is down here. Are you here? Do you think you're special? Are you claiming to be the one that God has been talking about? Are you coming in the footsteps of David? Is that who you're saying you are? Jesus answers a different question. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you any questions, you won't answer. In other words, this conversation is not going anywhere, right? But, he says, let me just cut to the chase. You're asking me, am I here? No, I'm not making the claim to be that person. He says, I will say this. Uh, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So, he says, from now on, you're going to see me up here. I'm actually here. I'm not here, (laughs) I'm here. He takes the title Son of Man. And uh, I want to read you where this comes from. It comes from Daniel uh, chapter 7. So uh, Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man 80 times. It is his most common reference to himself. It sounds humble. 
He's not claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to be the son of man, whatever that means. Well, it means something quite specific. Let me read it to you. Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Daniel is reporting his vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. This would be God the Father. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given dominion, which is power. You know, you're in charge. Dominion and glory and kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the one who comes, <laughs> seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is given all power, glory, honor, who is made head of absolutely everything and everyone. Right. So they're asking him, hey, are you claiming to be this guy right here? the Messiah, the one appointed by God to elevate us over Rome. And Jesus says, this conversation is not going anywhere. I'm actually making a different claim. I'm the son of man, right? I am God. Their response is to be shocked, right? Um, From now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said to him, are you kidding me? Are you claiming to be the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So this is also something, he he has just made another huge claim that is hard to pick up on in English. I'm going to read you Mark's account where it's a little bit easier to see. So we've got four accounts, four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They come at the same life of Christ from different angles. Matthew writing mostly for Jews, Mark sort of for the Romans, John writing for the Greeks, a little bit more philosophical, Luke writing for Gentiles. They tell different stories throughout Christ's life. When it gets down to the final week, they're almost all telling the same stories, right? This is, this is so important. Everything that happens is so significant. None of them can leave it out. So we have four different accounts of this. Mark gives us a longer account of this trial. So I'm going to read you Mark's account and and then highlight something. Uh, So Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were assembled. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Remember, they need evidence to go to the Romans and to say, you got to kill this guy. Okay? But they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, and their witnesses did not agree. So they had people that they brought in to make accusations against Jesus, but the problem is, under cross-examination, none of their charges held up. And so they were not getting what they, what they needed. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Okay, he did actually sort of say that. It's a little bit different. He claims to be the temple, right? He claims to be the new intersection of God and man on earth. Come to me, not to that building, if you want forgiveness of sins. And if you destroy 
Me, I will rise again in three days. That's what Jesus says. So they're a little bit off, but we heard him say this. Yet not even, um, not even then did their testimony agree. So the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his mantle and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? So, what you have to understand is that there is a play on words when Jesus says, I am. So, I am is the name that God reveals to Moses back in Exodus 3. It is the translation of Yahweh. So, Exodus 3, God calls Moses, burning bush, all of that, and he says, look, I need you to lead my people, the Jews, out of captivity. They've been slaves. Moses says, I don't want to do it. They go back and forth. Eventually, Moses says, okay, I'll go. When I go back to these people and I say that I'm supposed to lead, that I I met with God and God told me I'm supposed to lead you to to freedom, they're going to ask, what is his name? What is God's name? Now, name for a first century Jew means more than just what what is the sound that refers to him. It, it, it reveals character. It reveals something. God changes people's names when he changes their character. Names mean a lot. Okay? So, in Exodus 3, for the first time, God reveals his name. Up until then, every reference to God is a title. It's not a name. But in Exodus 3, God reveals his covenant name, his real name. And he says, Moses, when they ask what is his name, you tell them, I am sent you. Right? And it's, it's this Hebrew word, Yahweh. It's this sacred, different word that, that was so special, so sacred, so holy to the Jews that they would not say it, they wouldn't even write it. So in their, in their text, whenever the name Yahweh was to be written. They would write this weird combination of Yahweh and Lord. They, they put it together. It was a, sort of a nothing word. They had that so that they would come to it and go, what's that? Oh, that's right. This would be Yahweh, but I'm not going to say Yahweh. I'm going to say Lord because I don't want to risk right, uh, taking the name of the Lord in vain, in any way diminishing the power of this name. That is the I am. So, what we have here in Luke, it's a little bit easier to see in Matthew. It's just not that easy to see in English. But what we have in Luke is they ask, okay, are you the Messiah? Are you here? Are you, do you think you're the one that God has sent to lead us forward? And he says, you know what? This conversation is not getting to the heart of the matter. Let me just cut to the chase. I am the son of man. And they go, wait, 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 what are you saying? You're claiming that you are God. And he says, I am. Right? And there's this play on this verb. He says, yes, that's what I'm claiming. 
As a matter of fact, I'm going to take the name of God myself. I am. And the response of, of, of the chief priests is to say, well, we, don't need any, we don't need any witnesses. We don't need anybody to testify against this guy. He just committed blasphemy. He just claimed the name of God. He deserves to die. And his response is to tear his clothes, which is the response to say, what you have just said is so horrendous that thunder and lightning is, lightning is going to strike you dead. And I am, I am in trouble just for hearing you say it. Right? So I, need, I, am, I am showing to God my response is to say, I'm repenting. I'm sorry I heard that. I am, I am, I am, I am not with this guy. When the lightning hits, don't have it hit me. Right? That's his response. And says, uh, we don't need any more witnesses. Now, as it turns out, the, the Jews will have a different problem now. They, they were trying to get evidence for a capital offense against Jesus. Uh, they now got it, but it's different than what they expected. And so when they go to the Romans, they will say, this man claims to be king. right? And we have no king but Caesar. right? He is a threat to Caesar. So he's not claiming technically to be the one that we thought that was going to overthrow Rome, but we're sort of going to stay with that story because Pilate has to respond to that. There's a threat against Caesar. He's going to have to respond. So what does this mean to us? Uh, one, of the, one of the opening questions in, in our service today was, what, what is the most significant question? Right. What questions ultimately matter? Well, I would submit to you the most important question is, who is Jesus? And, and what am I going to do about Jesus? And this is not just my suggestion, right? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people and academics and, and others would say, right, this is the pivotal question. I heard 10 years ago Larry King being interviewed. And the interviewer asked King, if you could interview any person in history and ask them just one question, who would you interview and what would you ask? And he said, I would interview Mary. And I would ask her, really? It was a virgin conception, right? Because if I got the right answer to that, I'd know everything else. Is he really God? If you have uh, been reading through Luke and following this, the question, who are you, that, uh, that, that, that the Jews are asking, these, this council is asking Jesus, the, the question doesn't surprise you, nor does Christ's answer surprise you. Right? It surprised them, but it doesn't surprise you because after all, I mean, this is chapter 22. In chapter 1, angels show up announcing that this guy is about to be born, right? In chapter 2, we see that it's a miraculous conception. We see right away that, that, that evil mobilizes to try and kill him, but God supernaturally intervenes to keep him alive. We see that holy people swoon in his presence, right? We see that he's a perfect kid. At 30, we're introduced back into his life, and we see the first thing that happens is that, that he walks out of the crowd and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And then when he's baptized, he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and God the Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And then in in a sort of recreation of what happens uh, in the garden where Adam fails, we have Jesus go toe-to-toe with temptation and succeed. And then we watch as very systematically we see Jesus not only teaches with an authority that no one else has, but he demonstrates his power over sin and over sickness and over evil and over death and over nature, right? He's, it, everything's happening. is Clearly, Jesus is saying, I am not just a rabbi. I am not just another teacher, right? And then he parades into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, right? Making this claim to be the Passover lamb. And, and at the Passover meal, he, he says, this has always been about me. I am the ultimate sacrifice. This, this Passover celebration has been a placeholder for my death. And then he goes into the temple and he says, this temple is, is coming down, but I'm the new temple. I am the one that you come to for forgiveness of sins. And, and I mean, in so many different ways, he has been saying, I am God. So if you've been following along at Luke 22, we're not shocked by the answer. Right? When Jesus says, I'm God, you go, right. That's sort of been the point Luke has been making since chapter one. And we've seen it so many different ways. So let me go to my four points. If, if, if you've been at Christ Church for any length of time, you've heard me make these four points a lot of different ways in, in books, in v- blogs, in, in sermons. So let me make the four points. Number one, Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. Right? 60 billion people have lived on this planet. No one has made the impact of Jesus. He is the most influential person of all time. More books have been written about him. More music has been inspired by him. More artwork has been dedicated to him. You know, you go back and you look at the, at the beginnings of hospitals and orphanages and care shelters and women care shelters and all of these things, and it's, it's Christians acting in Jesus' name. And you read about the people that tried to abolish slavery or eradicate poverty or, or, or promote literacy, and they're saying, I'm motivated by Jesus, right, and who he is and what he's done. And, and his, his, birth is, his birthday is this huge celebration globally. Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. Number two, he claims to be God. The most influential person, not somebody easily overlooked or dismissed, the most influential person who ever lived claims to be God. Some of you may have heard that he doesn't actually claim to be God, right? I started to hear that in college. Well, he doesn't actually claim to be God. That's something his followers put on him. <laughs> Wrong! He is put to death for claiming to be God in so many different ways. To the people he is talking to, he makes it clear, I am claiming to be God. They say, are you here? He goes, no, I'm the son of man. Look it up, right? He he accepts worship. He forgives sins. He says, I am the creator of everything everywhere. I am going to judge everybody who's ever been born. He makes the biggest claims because he says, I am God. I am He takes the name of God. He claims to be God. Which 
leads us to the third point. Either he is or he isn't. (laughs) If he isn't, he's a bad guy. I want to prevent... I want to prevent where most people go. Many people dismiss the church today. There's all kinds of problems. There are all kinds of problems. Many people dismiss the church today, but they like Jesus. I like Jesus. I like Jesus. He was a good guy. He was, you know, he's a, he's a moral reformer. He was a leader. He was, he, he was, I like Jesus. Okay, stop it. That's not an option. Okay, it's sort of like being on uh, Let's Make a Deal, and it's, it's Wayne Brady if you're young, or Monty Hall if you're old, and he goes, okay, $500 or what's behind the curtain, and you go, I'll take the new car. Go, no, 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 it's $500 or what's behind the curtain, you go, I'll take the new car. You go, look, one more time, you got two options here, $500 or what's behind the curtain, I'll take the new car. Okay, sit down, you get nothing, you lose, Amazing. The argument that Jesus is good, is God, or a bad man was popularized in the West in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It came out of his addresses in the, in, during World War II in, in Britain, and, and in 52, this book, Mere Christianity, comes out. There he said, Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic, right? He's who he claims to be, he's God. Or he knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be, so he was lying about it. Or he thought he was God when he's not, so he's crazy. He's mentally ill. He's a lunatic. Those are your options. People added to that legend. Maybe he didn't exist. But there's just no possibility of holding to that view today. There's so much evidence for Christ's life that that's gone away. So you still, you've got the Lord, liar, lunatic. Now, there are, uh, there are, there is evidence of this argument being made in the second century. It's not new to C.S. Lewis. The way the early church framed it was, outdus out homo malus. Jesus is either God, outdus, he's God, or uh, out homo malus. He's a man who's bad. When I was in Cambridge five years ago on my sabbatical, I, I studied at a certain library, and there's a bunch of theologians that have studied at that library, and so I was sort of intrigued by seeing, you know, who had sat at the desk I was at, who had, what they had written, because they've got all the books there, the people that have been there. And I was drawn to this guy named R.T. France. And there was one quote that I wrote out and I, I've held on to. And France says, it's worth stating that if you are neutral or ambivalent about Christ, you have not understood his claims or demands. There are many gentle souls out there, gener- generous philanthropists, high-minded reformers, and altruistic social workers. Long may they continue. Jesus was not one of them. He did not claim to be one of them, and he did not act like one of them. Had he, we could look on with some interest, be encouraged, and walk away. Christ makes demands. So you follow, and you say, yes, he's God, and you follow, or you say he's a bad guy. Those are the options that are in front of us. And I believe you follow, right? That you're not going to find anyone else like Jesus. And you follow. And some of you have not fully decided to follow. And I'm sympathetic because it took me 18 months having been confronted with Jesus to get to the point where I could 
take the step across the line. I was trying to get all my questions answered. That's not the way it works. You'll still have questions. But I want to say there is, there is nobody like Jesus, the most influential person who ever lived, the, the most positive force for good in the world, claimed to be God. He claimed to die in your place. This is Luke chapter 22. <laughs> if you've been following along, you see this argument has been made that Jesus is unique and special in so many different ways. And the claim is that he died in your place. And you can accept that. You can follow him. You can be a Christ follower. Or you can say, I think the whole thing's a joke. Or I think he's a bad man. Those are your options. And as we close today, I want to give you an opportunity to lean in, to put your weight on, put your weight down and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a Christ follower. So let me just say, uh, I'm going I'm to re- repeat a prayer that you can repeat silently in your heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I am going to ask you to tell somebody before you leave today. Because the, coming to faith in Christ is not the end. It's a beginning point. And so we want to be able to come alongside and help you. But I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Let me pray for all of us, and then I'll give those of you a chance who want to pray to do that. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness, your grace. Thank you for this account by Luke that you have preserved, this this 24-chapter argument that there is no one like Jesus and this, this life that we get to look at and the teaching and the wisdom and the insight and the fulfillment of prophecy and all the things that, that are brought together in this book. Uh, thank you for sending your son to die in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you for accepting that assignment and for going to your death, for willingly laying down your life, for not fighting back when you easily could have, for not walking away, for not overpowering those who are going to put you to death, but, uh, but going to uh, your death in our place for us. And now, I, if, if you want to become a Christ follower, I want to encourage you to silently make this kind of a commitment. Say these words in your heart. Heavenly Father, I choose to lean in. I want to be a Christ follower. I realize there is no one like Jesus. I am amazed uh, at who he is and what he did, and I, I am going to put my weight down and choose to step over the line. Lord Jesus, I accept you. Please accept me. Forgive me of my sin. Heavenly Father, fill me with your spirit. Guide me, direct me, lead my life. I want to be one of your children. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.